0: Psalm chapter 2. This is that psalm that you just heard read. It starts out with that famous question, why do the heathen rage? And then the psalm goes on to say the people plot, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And the, the idea here is that there is a vast conspiracy against God. If you don't know that by now, you haven't really been watching the news the last few years closely. But all of this world's forces, the courts, government powers, the academic elite, and even prevailing opinion among everyday heathens, all of those forces collectively have aligned themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Who's that? That's Christ. In fact, that's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. They oppose his authority, they reject his law, they challenge his right to rule over them, and in order to assert their own autonomy, they'll go so far as to embrace irrational philosophies and adopt wicked, twisted moral standards, they attack the foundations of orderly society or self-identity or whoever or whatever they please, and even redefine marriage by court order and try to impose their twisted notions, their ungodly notions on all of us by government force. That's been going on now for, well, I was going to say two decades, but truthfully, it's been going on longer than that. And ultimately, and it's accelerated, of course, in the last half decade to a degree that I think none of us thought possible, but ultimately, they do this for one main reason, This is an emphatic expression of their utter refusal to believe God and live in accord with his law. Uh, That's what this psalm is all about. Does it sound familiar? Listen again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, which... Describes precisely the kind of arrogant rebellion that is epitomized in some recent Supreme Court decisions, frankly, and and government policies. And a host of other massive changes in our culture kind of all have one thing in common. They represent an overt rebellion against the moral standards that are given to us in Scripture. So that nowadays, it seems, doesn't it, like our, our whole culture is engaged in a wholesale effort to overthrow the authority of God's Word. And I know people say, well, it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, because there is a conspiracy, and that's what this psalm is describing. To put it in terms used in this psalm, the heathen are raging, and they're doing it today more than ever. So this is definitely a psalm for our time. Now, Psalm 2 is the first of what are known as the Messianic Psalms, psalms that make Prophetic references to Christ, and this particular psalm is quoted at least seven times in the New Testament, and it's always in reference to Christ. So the meaning of the psalm is absolutely clear and made clear by Scripture. Using Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can say dogmatically that this is a psalm about Christ, and more precisely, it's a psalm about Messiah the Prince, The focus here is on Christ's lordship, his rightful place as ruler over the world, his absolute right to demand not only obedience, but also worship from everyone on earth. Acts 4.25 quotes this psalm and attributes it to David, and like most of David's psalms, it was prompted, I think, by a specific event in his life, and written by David specifically for that occasion— And this one seems to have been written to celebrate the establishment of David's throne for the first time in the city of Jerusalem. You can read it with that in mind, and it is in perfect harmony with what we know about Israel's Old Testament history and the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, because when David ascended the throne in Jerusalem for the first time, the kingdom was united and the heathen nations were in a rage. God had set his chosen king on the throne in Zion, the holy hill in Jerusalem. But this psalm is not merely a celebration of David's earthly triumph. The language goes far beyond the earthly reality that David was celebrating, and and it speaks prophetically of an event that's yet future, even greater reality than David's enthroning. This is about the establishment of Messiah's throne. And so I want to stress this. The primary meaning of this psalm is messianic. It's about Christ. The New Testament consistently underscores the messianic nature, the theme of this psalm. And and it's one of those passages in the Old Testament that you just simply cannot deny if you believe Scripture is authoritative. You cannot deny that this is about Christ. There is no speculating on whether or not this refers to him, The New Testament repeatedly and plainly says it does. This is about Jesus. And at least 19 of the Psalms fit into this same category of messianic prophecy. This one is the first, as I said, first in order of appearance, not necessarily, the Psalms are not laid out for us chronologically. We know that because of what they talk about. They kind of skip around, but there is an order to the canon, and this has been put at the head of all the messianic Psalms. And notice this expression in verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that word anointed, I said it means Christ. It's actually the Hebrew word mashiach from which we get the word Messiah. Messiah literally means the anointed one and the Greek equivalent is the word Christ, the anointed one. This particular psalm divides naturally into four sections of three verses each. And the parallelism of the psalms, this is why I love the psalms, by the way, they include their own parallelism, and and this one basically gives us our outline. Each of the four sections features a different voice speaking. First in verses 1 through 3, you hear the voice of the world. Then in verses 4 through 6, It's the voice of the Father. Verses 7 through 9 feature the voice of the Son, and then in the final three verses, you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so, this psalm plays out like a miniature drama with one speaker after another taking center stage. The drama is about a great cosmic conflict. It's a battle over the kingdom of Christ. It's a war between heaven and hell for dominion over the earth. And who do you suppose wins this battle? God does, of course. And this psalm underscores both the utter futility and the sheer idiocy of opposing the will of a sovereign God. God will be victorious in the cosmic battle, and all who oppose him only accomplish their own destruction. Doesn't seem like that when you're in the midst of it. Sometimes it seems like the bad guys are winning, but God will set Christ on his rightful throne, and anyone who tries to thwart him will gain nothing but his own damnation. And so this is a kind of big picture look at the conflict of the ages. There's a lot of gospel truth here too, by the way. It reveals the wickedness of human depravity, uh, the sovereign power of God, and the preeminence of Christ, and it closes then with a tender invitation and a blessing on all who trust Christ. So in a sense, the entire gospel is in this psalm in capsule form. That's why this psalm is so frequently quoted in the New Testament. So let's look at the way this drama unfolds in the psalm. Each of the four voices take center stage, one at a time, one after the other, starting with the voice of the world. This is a voice of defiance. Listen to the first three verses of the psalm again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So those first three verses describe the sinful hatred of all humanity, all unbelieving humanity against the authority of God the natural state of the fallen man. He he isn't subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, Paul says in Romans 7, or Romans 8 rather. Their, their contempt for God and everything he represents when it's pushed to its ultimate expression, that hatred becomes a blind and irrational rage. And that's the word that's used here. They rage. They despise the Lord God. They loathe his Messiah. And this hatred has put them in a state of passionate fury. Again, you can see this in the news headlines every day. In fact, have you ever seen an unbeliever express just unbridled rage against against God? I, I see it all the time because my website on the internet often makes me a target for that kind of irrational rage. There's a more or less organized effort on the internet to attack and discredit biblical Christianity. There's one group of arrogant atheists who, years ago, gathered together, labeled themselves the internet infidels, and they have made it their business to assault and malign Christianity wherever they find it online. And I get emails from people like that on a semi-regular basis And they say the most vile and blasphemous and angry things. In fact, here's a clue. A lot of them hang out on YouTube. And for that reason, I never read YouTube comments. It's like filling your mind with garbage. So don't. But whenever I do read one of these ranting email messages, I think of this verse. The heathen rage. And it's an irrational rage. And notice this Phrase at the end of verse 1, the people plot in vain. The King James Version uses the word imagine. The people imagine a vain thing. That's, I think, I didn't handle right that into the Messiah. Why do the people imagine a vain thing? It's identical language that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans one twenty one. Again, from the King James Version, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Vain imaginations, the ESV says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So these are people with foolish minds and futile ambitions and dark hearts, and they actually prefer their own ignorance and emptiness to the knowledge of true God, and the true God and they they make an effort by the way to pass it off as scholarship don't be intimidated by that I was speaking this week at the Ark Encounter they had their pastor's conference and apparently in my message I said something unscripted uh, and somebody picked it up and made a tweet out of it so it's been posted everywhere this week but what I said was sin will mess up your mind it makes you stupid (laughs) well here you are These are people with dark hearts. They actually, as I said, they prefer their own ignorance. Paul says they refused to honor God as God, and that's why their foolish hearts were darkened. And so so they're doing this to themselves, by the way, but God, in a judgmental way, compounds it, just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God, in, in response, hardened his heart even further. People make themselves stupid, And God, as a judgment, makes them even stupider. And when you think you've reached the limit of that, like we have in our culture, they'll fool you and get even stupider still. So nevertheless, that's what this psalm is saying. And yes, it's making fun of the sinful stupidity of people who refuse to honor God. So keep this in mind. Both the psalmist and the apostle Paul are are describing the state of all humanity when when they say... Their imaginations are, are vain, empty, futile. Before we get righteously indignant at, uh, at anyone in the news or the Supreme Court or entertainment celebrities or our legislatures or all the people we blame for the deterioration of our culture, we have to confess that each one of us, left to ourselves, we would also be complicit in this conspiracy against the authority of God. And in fact, we ourselves have been guilty of the worst kinds of sin and rebellion, and if it were not for Christ's redeeming work, we ourselves would be damned right along with the worst rebels who ever raised a fist toward heaven. We need to bear that in mind when we're lamenting the sad state of our culture today. Considered by ourselves, apart from Christ you and I are as guilty as anyone. And in fact, Paul's comments in Romans 1 are the very beginning of an argument that he will build over the first three chapters of Romans culminating in those familiar statements of Romans 3 verses 9 through 12. All, he says, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, he says. No one does good, not even one. And he keeps quoting, he's quoting there Old Testament verses that underscore the universal guilt of all humanity. And and so no one can read those texts and say, well, I'm exempt. Because in the end, Paul says in Romans 3.19, every mouth is stopped And the whole world stands guilty before God. So the rage that's described in our psalm here in verse 1 is bound up, it's a rage that's bound up in every fallen human heart. It doesn't always manifest itself in overt insolence. Sometimes it's passive aggression. Sometimes there's nonetheless a defiance and rage, real rage, in every sinful heart. The ultimate proof of the sinner's rebellion is his unbelief, and that doesn't always mean rank atheism. In fact, unbelief often masquerades as piety, but it's always poised to break forth in active rebellion against God. Remember that the throngs who shouted Hosanna at Christ when he entered Jerusalem, these are the same people living in the city that just a week later, less than a week later, were crying for his blood. And so, no doubt, those people shouting Hosanna at Christ when he entered Jerusalem, no doubt included some of the same people who joined in the mob who were screaming for his death within a week. And most of all, it was the religious leaders who drummed up all that rage. Again, disobedience and unbelief masquerading as piety. It was the religious leaders who did it. And in fact, the crucifixion is the very event that is prophetically described in our passage. Look at verses two and three again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So how do you know what that refers to? Let me show you a New Testament commentary on that exact verse. So keep a marker here and turn to Acts chapter four. And I'll I'll paint the context for you. This is soon after the events of Pentecost, early in the book of Acts. Peter and John have just healed a, a lame man at the temple at the beginning of Acts chapter three. The Sanhedrin had arrested them and held them overnight and instructed them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. But since there was no legitimate crime with which they could be charged, the Sanhedrin had to let them go. And when Peter and John returned to their group, they, they prayed a prayer for boldness. They prayed that God would make them bold. Since the Sanhedrin had tried to forbid them to preach, they prayed to God for strength to preach boldly. And their prayer starts in Acts 4, verse 24. Here's what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now you recognize that, right? They're quoting from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, verses 1 and 2. So look at their commentary on this psalm. Acts four twenty-seven. Here's how they comment on Psalm 2. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it's a Calvinistic prayer, by the way. And the primary fulfillment of this Messianic psalm is seen in the crucifixion of Christ, when the rulers of this world took counsel with one another against the Lord and His anointed. In fact, there's an interesting vignette about this in Luke's Gospel. It's a well known fact of history that the family of Herod and the Roman governors were bitter political rivals. We've talked about this, I think, at Christmas time. When we talk about Herod. The territory of Judea, which was where the Roman governors, Pontius Pilate, ruled, that was originally under the control of the Herodian dynasty. Herod was originally the ruler there, and one of the sons of Herod the Great. Archelaus had been deposed by the Roman emperor and a Roman governor was then appointed over Judea. So from the perspective of Herod, the Roman governors had usurped a key portion of his rightful kingdom. All the members of the Herodian dynasty hated the Roman governors and Pontius Pilate was only the fifth governor in a long line of men who took over in Judea after the death of Herod the Great. And so, these governors, these Roman governors, and in this case it was Pilate, they were no friends of the Herods. They were rivals. And yet, according to Luke 23, 12, on the day of Christ's crucifixion, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, Scripture says. The conspiracy against Christ is what brought these two bitter political rivals Together And so you have, according to Acts 4, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against Christ. Now, the thing about those four categories is everybody's included. Herod, the Romans, the Gentiles, and the Jews, all of them unlikely allies, Herod and Pilate, the Jews and the Romans, all conspiring together to kill the spotless Lamb of God Just as Psalm 2 prophesied, both the leaders and the people are in a rage. These groups of people and rulers were all four categories of bitter political rivals, enemies, devoted to contradictory agendas, living with contempt for one another, constantly at odds morally, politically, economically, and, and most of all religiously, and yet They all came together with one sinister goal in mind, to set themselves against the Lord and his anointed and to try to cast off his rule over them. They were united against Christ in a a fit of rage. And things are no different today. The rulers of the world today are more sophisticated, perhaps, in their tactics. But both rulers and people still rage against the Lord and his anointed the world as a whole still desperately tries to cast off the bonds of God's rule. And our own, mad, our own society has been on a mad quest for 50 years or longer to rid our laws and our moral standards of any of the remnants of God's law. Society has now legitimized fornication, divorce, abortion, homosexuality. Next will be euthanasia, polygamy, and who knows what other kinds of perversions? You know the ones that are they're already vying for acceptance include pedophilia, bestiality, things like that. And furthermore, our culture makes heroes of those who flaunt sins like those. We have pride parades. One of the marks of American pop culture is that our celebrities love to defy moral standards. And people love to have it that way. Both rulers and people still conspire together. Their hatred of God is as spiteful and as malicious as that of the people who put Christ to death. They storm and they rage, and it's a deliberate and and obstinate opposition to God and his authority over the human heart. Like those who are described in this psalm, they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. They're willing to defy both reason and conscience, and their hatred of the Lord is a blind rage. Exactly what's described in this psalm. They will by all means attempt to prevent the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth. Now, it's easy for Christians in a culture like ours to get panicky and frustrated, but that's only if we keep our focus earthward. If we're thinking in an earthbound way, it's discouraging. If we listen to the voice of the world, which is, as I said, the voice of defiance, you might get the impression that we're on the losing side of this cosmic battle. If we think of it as our responsibility to establish the Lord's kingdom, you might rightly despair. In fact, lots of Christians do that, you know. That's why the evangelical community is so distracted and so obsessed with public policy every election year. One of the besetting sins of the church in our generation is that her focus is too earthbound. She's far too concerned with and troubled about what the raging heathen may or may not do and what threats the kings of the earth pose to the people of God. We need to remember that the raging kings and the raging people of this earth are not sovereign. God is. And so, let's turn our ears away from the defiant voice of the world and listen to the next voice in this drama, Psalm 2. This one is the voice of the Father, and it's the voice of derision. That may surprise you. This is the Father's voice, derision. He's laughing, in other words. He's mocking. And we may be tempted to despair when we see the whole world with all its rulers and all its people arrayed against God and determined to throw off his rule. But do you think God is at least bit alarmed by all that opposition? Not at all. Look at the father's response. He laughs. He mocks them. There are people who say you should never do that, but God does it. This psalm tells us that, verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, he's making fun of them. He's mocking them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, so he's also angry at them, and terrify them in his fury, it's a furious anger, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So there's a, there's a stark contrast here. The world described in the first three verses is pictured as agitated and raging and turbulent and angry, distressed and disturbed in their frantic efforts to overthrow divine authority. But God is pictured as seated in the heavens, calmly having a good laugh at them. I like that. They are in a rage, and yet they cannot vex God. He sits still, and they're driven into a further frenzy. There's a stately dignity in the way God responds here. He shows his contempt for their rebelliousness not by rising up to do battle with them, but by sitting and laughing at them, which, by the way, is often a good thing to do with God-haters, just sit there and laugh at them. Their attempts to overthrow God are so absurd, so irrational, so hopeless that their combined efforts to to thwart God, don't even muster any kind of defense from him, just scorn. They are the recipients of his scorn. The Lord holds them in derision, and that means his only response to them is a deliberate show, and it's deliberate show of utter contempt. Rather than being unsettled by their fury, he makes sport of them. He has no regard whatsoever for their pathetic efforts to overthrow him. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. One of the great texts about God's sovereignty. But he is absolutely sovereign. He's in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And all the sinful rage of humanity doesn't disquiet him in the least. All of Satan's cunning and the forces of hell and all the combined energies of this world cannot upset or shake God in the least. And those things are, they look formidable from, from our perspective when the whole world is arrayed against God and the entire political system, the media, everybody. We look at that and think that's, it looks like insurmountable opposition, but that's nothing in God's eyes. He sees these wretched rebels as no threat to him at all. They're merely contemptible, despicable, insignificant objects of his derision. He laughs at them. You know, the enemies of God are well known for scoffing at the people of God. No one thinks or talks more about God than those who say they don't believe in him. And their favorite stratagem is mockery, insults. They jeer at believers, and they do it, I'm convinced, as a way of trying to intimidate us. And it can be very intimidating and humiliating and even discouraging when someone is taunting you and pouring contempt on you, but we can take great comfort in this. God isn't intimidated, and he turns their mockery right back at them, but when God laughs, this is no mere intimidation. He is not a a cosmic bully who needs to assert his authority by intimidation, but quite the opposite. His laughter is a righteous display of his sovereign confidence in the face of a universe of evil opposition. He's fixed on his heavenly throne, and all the opposition in the universe is not going to overthrow him. This is not a laughter of glee. It's a scornful laughter. Nevertheless, I think there's good reason to see a kind of divine sense of humor that underlies even this kind of laughter. If you hang around on Twitter, you know there, there are lots of Christians on Twitter who think you should never make fun of anything evil. Just don't make fun of it. But I find that hard to reconcile with this psalm. God often makes it a point to turn his foes' rebelliousness against them in ways that are, you know, genuinely humorous. You remember the time when the Philistines captured the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon and they came in the next morning and the, their little statue of Dagon was on his face before the ark of the Lord. That's funny. And it gets funnier because they set Dagon back up in his place and when they came back, this time he's on his face again and this time his head and his hands are broken off. It's funny. I don't care how stodgy your view of God is. That has to make you laugh. And remember how God demonstrated his sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about this not too many weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at the time, one of the most powerful men who's ever ruled the world, and he ruled, he ruled the known world of his day. He defied the living God, and you remember what happened to him? He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. That's Daniel 4.33. There's a ton of ironic humor in that, and it has a happy ending because he, he gets converted. But it's funny. There's also, a, I think, a genuinely funny irony in the fact that Pharaoh ordered all the Israelite males to be drowned, and then his own daughter wound up raising Moses, and then his armies were drowned by God. All through Scripture, you see evidence that of God's humor in the way he deals with his enemies. You see it reflected, for example, in the merciless way Elijah taunted those evil Baal priests on Mount Carmel just before the Lord sent fire from heaven and defeated them in the sight of all Israel. That scornful humor in Elijah's sarcasm reflects exactly the same kind of derision that is described here in Psalm 2. But it is also true that in the big picture of things, this is not funny, especially for the raging heathen. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. An old British commentator named Thomas Adams wrote this comment on Psalm chapter 2. He says, Oh, what are his frowns if his smiles be so terrible? I get it. And because after the Lord has laughed, he speaks, verse 5. He retaliates, not with violence, but with a simple decree. In fact, Spurgeon wrote about this. He doesn't need to smite the breath of his lips is enough. And despite his laughter, the Lord answers them with wrath. Again, it's not just funny. There's humor in it, but it isn't funny. And and again, you see, God is not the least bit threatened by this conspiracy against him. And yet, in the words of Matthew Henry, though God despises them as impotent, yet he does not therefore wink at them, but he is justly displeased with them, As impudent and impious, and he will make the most daring sinners to know that he is so, and they will tremble before him. So he speaks now, we hear his voice, and he speaks with anger, not a spiteful hostility, but a, a righteous, holy wrath. Because he's perfectly holy, he can't ignore their rebellion. It displeases him. And his displeasure with them is described. I think rightly, as fury in verse 5. The King James Version calls it sore displeasure. It's an intense term. It it echoes the thought of Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.25. Our God is a consuming fire. And so when when it says He speaks to them in His wrath, the idea is that He overthrows and utterly destroys them by merely speaking the word. Their aim was to frustrate him and dethrone him from his rightful dominion, and they fail completely. So now he will vex them and vanquish them completely. He speaks, and notice what he says, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. And he announces to them that the very thing they were in a rage to prevent... He's already accomplished. Again, in Spurgeon's words, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. I like that. He says, God's will is done and all the rage of man cannot overthrow it. Have you ever noticed that everywhere you turn in Scripture, we encounter the doctrine of God's sovereignty? I'm not injecting this into this psalm, it's there. And here, in fact, it's here in bold print. Try as they might, the raging heathen can never thwart the will of God. He will use even their sinful rebellion to further his own purposes. And now, having announced that his chosen king is already enthroned, the voice of the Father gives way to the voice of the Son, and the drama of Psalm 2 moves on. The voice of the world was a voice of defiance. The voice of the Father was a voice of derision. The Son's voice is a voice of devotion. Here the Son speaks, verses 7 through 9, and it's the voice of devotion. These are some of the most often quoted verses in the entire New Testament. When you see Scripture quoting from the Old Testament, it goes to this passage as much as any other. I didn't actually do a count, but this may be the most quoted text from the New Testament. So the Son speaks and he says this, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, you can probably hear Handel's Messiah going in the back of your head on this. Now, I referred to this as the voice of devotion. Here, Christ is revealing his devotion to the Father's word and the Father's will and the Father's work. And I want you to notice that in order. First note his devotion to the Father's word. Practically, this whole speech, though this is the voice of the Son, the speech consists of words he is quoting from the Father. Jesus said in John 8, 28, "...I do nothing on my own authority." but speak just as the Father taught me. So prophetically, what you hear is the incarnate Son of God, the human Jesus, speaking of his devotion to the Father. I will tell of the decree, he says in verse 7. Whose decree is this? What is he talking about? This can only be the eternal decree of God concerning his Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. That speaks... Not of an actual day. The word today, don't let it trip you up. because it's not speaking of a point in time. It's talking about the endless today of all eternity. This is about the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. I did a whole message on that from Hebrews 2. You can look it up if you want to listen to it. But understand, this is the eternal decree of God that he's citing here. And uh, there's a point, I, I can't just skip over this, because this is probably... The most heavily debated issue in this psalm, uh, I don't believe this statement, today I have begotten thee, is about the incarnation. The word today here can't be used to fix a point in time, but rather this is a decree, an eternal decree, that belongs to eternity past before there was time. It's describing, as I said, the eternal relationship between the first and second members of the Trinity and the begetting that is spoken of here it refers to the same mystery that's spoken of in the most familiar text of Scripture, John 3.16, when Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God. Going all the way back to the Nicene Council, theologians have referred to this as eternal generation. And don't ask me to explain it I know it sounds like a a contradiction in terms because we tend to think of generation as having to do with the origin or the conception of someone or something. But when Scripture says Christ was begotten of God, it's not speaking about his origin because he is eternally God. He had no beginning. And and a host of statements in Scripture say that, like John 1.1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he had no origin, and he himself cannot be a created being because without him was not anything made that was made. So the fact that he is begotten, that can't be speaking of how he originated because he didn't originate. He always existed. But instead, this is a kind of anthropomorphic expression that describes the Father's relationship to the Son. Here for the first time in Scripture, the Son is said to be begotten by the Father. And then the expression is used repeatedly in Scripture. John 3.16 speaks of the only begotten Son of God. John 4, 1 John 4.19, God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. And the Greek word in those New Testament texts is monogenes, which means one of a kind, or it can also mean only begotten but what it describes is Christ's unique relationship with the Father. He is eternally begotten in a way that's unlike any mere creature. He's not created. He's not adopted. He's eternally begotten. Now you ask, compare that to something else we know. There is no comparison. There's nothing like it. So, you know, you can't understand it in the sense that you can fully explain it, but you have to Accept it because it's what scripture teaches. John 15, 26 says, The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So the Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And both of those expressions describe eternal realities that to us are bigger than our heads can hold. They're a mystery. Neither expression suggests that either the Son or the Spirit had a beginning. But what they do is give us clues about the eternal relationships within the Trinity because those are the properties, we call them, that make the second and third persons of the Trinity distinct from the Father. In every sense, every other sense, the members of the Godhead share exactly the same attributes. They agree in every respect. They have one mind, one will, but only of the Son is it ever said he is begotten And only of the Spirit can it be said that he proceeds from the Father and Son. So why do I stress this? Because Hebrews 2 quotes this verse as proof that Jesus is God. God the Father calls him his only begotten Son, his begotten Son. And that's a title that is not given to any angelic being. In fact, that's the whole point the writer of Hebrews is making in the opening chapters. That Christ is greater than the angels and one of the reasons is he is eternally begotten by God. Now, you and I are called sons and daughters of God in an adoptive sense, but Jesus is the only begotten son of God and therefore he's higher than any angel or any other created being. He is God. He was in the beginning with God, the eternal word, and from the beginning, the word was God. He did not come into existence at some point in time. And so it seems clear to me that this begetting and the sonship that is spoken of in our psalm here are related necessarily to Christ's deity, not his humanity, not his incarnation. The passage is an emphatic affirmation of Jesus' deity as the eternal Son of God and a celebration of his lordship and his his sitting on the throne of David as an incarnate man. And the psalm is expressly quoted to make that point in Hebrews 1. Anyway, you can listen to that message on Hebrews 2, is it Hebrews 1, whatever. My message from Hebrews on this issue of eternal begetting, if you want to probe it a little further. That's all I want to say about it here. But, but it's true that the early church was racked by debates over these issues. The deity of Christ, his incarnation, the doctrine of the... Trinity, the Arians and the Gnostics held heretical opinions about these exact doctrines. And in the end, it was this doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ that ultimately became a key point, sort of the linchpin in the doctrine of the Trinity. The view that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father became an important plank in the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Don't give it up just because you can't understand it. And this verse, Psalm 2-7, is the key text in understanding that doctrine. This is a declaration of the eternal decree of God. Again, it's not a description of something that happened at a given point in time. Now, back to the text. And, And remember why the Son recites the decree of His Father. This is to demonstrate that He is devoted, absolutely devoted, to the Word of the Father. And furthermore, he's devoted to the Father's will. Verse 8, still quoting from the Father, he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the Father's will, actually, that the heathen, the same heathen who raged against Christ in verse 1, that they would become the son's inheritance. And in order to assure this, God visits the Gentiles to call out from them, uh, people for his name, that's Acts 15, 14. And in order to do that, he must first redeem them. And in order to do that, the son must die on their behalf. And so the son's devotion to the father's will is going to cost him his life, but he willingly pays the price. Listen to John 10, verses 15 and 18. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. This commandment I have received from my Father. So God's will involved redeeming a people whom He would give to the Son for His inheritance, but the price of their redemption was the Son's own life. He willingly paid that price. So devoted was He to the Father's will. So He's he's devoted to the Father's word and the Father's will. He's devoted to the Father's work. Verse 9 you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he declares to the enemies of his father that they will be his inheritance. He will rule over them with an iron scepter despite their frantic attempts to thwart this plan. His work will be to enforce the rightful authority of the father. Verse 9, by the way, is echoed in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27, in Jesus' words to the church at Thyatira, he makes this promise to the faithful believers there. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He's referring back to the psalm. And so he passes on his own legacy to the redeemed. This is an aspect of how Christ shares his birthright with us, the redeemed. That's what's included in the fact that we are called joint heirs with Christ. It's really an amazing thought. But here's the point in Psalm 2. The reign of Christ was established long ago, in eternity past, by divine decree. It's part of the Son's birthright, growing out of the eternal counsel of the Godhead, and as such, it's not subject to change or overthrow. The work, of the, father has, the work that the Father has given the Son to do, He'll do. He's devoted to it. And those whom He redeems, the ones who overcome, will share the very throne they once opposed. It's an incredible promise. In fact, I'd love to kind of stop at that point and preach a whole sermon on the implications of our co-regency with Christ. But I can't do that. You've got to go hear John MacArthur's second hour. So we need to move on (laughs) to the final voice in this drama. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And this one is the voice of decision. Holy Spirit, the voice of decision. And this final voice is perhaps the only one that's not expressly identified for us. But it's obvious who this is. The tender pleadings here are indicative of the Holy Spirit's role to draw sinners to Christ, to woo and convict them and and point them towards their Savior. Here's what the Spirit says, the closing verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So, first, notice, he appeals to those who are vain in their imaginations, and he asks them to be wise and be warned and receive instruction. Verse 10. In other words, he pleads for them to conform their intellect to the mind of God. Second, he counsels those who have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed to serve him instead with fear. This is a plea for them to submit their wills to the will of God. And finally, he admonishes those who are in such a blind rage against divine authority to kiss the sun, meaning they need to love the one they've hated. And this is a plea for them to bind their hearts to the heart of God. So he pleads for a full surrender of their intellect, emotions, and will. And the alternative, notice, is total destruction, for which they will bear full responsibility if they continue in their rebellion. There's an incredible promise of grace at the end of this psalm. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Those who once raged against God are actually offered His blessing in return for their trust, just their simple trust. take refuge in Him. And the way this is worded is significant. "Kiss the sun," it says. A kiss is a sign of love between equals. And none of us has any right to that sort of familiarity with the eternal God of the universe, and yet. The Son of God assumed humanity precisely so that He could relate to us as brethren. What a glorious condescension that is for Him, and what a glorious elevation it is for us. From raging heathen, we become joint heirs with Christ. It's really amazing. And it's in perfect harmony with scores of places in Scripture where God offers mercy to anyone and all who will put their trust in Christ. You know, we talk, or actually Mike talks a lot about limited atonement. And by that we mean, and I agree with him by the way, that the design of God's atonement was for the elect alone. There's no limitation whatsoever on the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. It's infinite. It's of infinite value. And God's proposal of mercy is indiscriminate here. It's offered freely to everyone. Whosoever will may come, and whoever does come, he will not cast out. But in the end, the rebellion of sinners is so determined and so obstinate that the only ones who do come are those who are sovereignly drawn by God and given hearts of faith, new hearts. So, sinfully rebellious is the unregenerate heart that not one sinner ever responds to this merciful invitation apart from the enablement of divine grace. And so we see that God, who laughs at the collective efforts of all the forces of evil who try to overthrow his rule, nonetheless, he offers kindness and mercy to all. And when that mercy is spurned, he sovereignly graciously redeems a remnant anyway so that his eternal purposes are fulfilled despite the fact that the whole world and the entire empire of Satan try to conspire together to thwart him. That's a a good and brief summary of the conflict of the ages, everything that's happening today that troubles you. It's summarized and explained in this psalm. And David gives it in this benediction. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Him. That's an expression that denotes faith. And in fact, the King James Version translates it this way. Blessed are all they who put their trust in Him. That's exactly what it means. And so here, in harmony with everything else Scripture teaches, we are taught that divine blessing comes not to those who earn it by their merits, because they have no merit, but... It comes to those who simply trust in God and His anointed and make Him their refuge. The doctrine of justification by faith is wrapped up in that last sentence of this psalm. Every one of us should be humbled and challenged by that. As you look at what's going on in the world around you, it's okay to be troubled. It is troubling. But turn that on yourself and understand that God has saved us from just that kind of trouble. It helps, I think, to see the battle of the ages from God's perspective and realize that no matter how perilous things may seem when you find yourself in a world full of raging heathens, from the heavenly perspective, there's absolutely no cause for alarm. God will triumph over his enemies, and in the process, he will Bless those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, this is reminiscent of Romans 5, that verse that says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to you by the death of your Son. We were not merely idly indifferent, but we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind raging in our opposition to everything that is holy, walking in sin and self-will, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our own body and our own mind. Scripture is accurate in that description of what sin does to us. So we thank you for the salvation Christ purchased on our behalf. And may we live in a way that reflects your grace and your righteousness And as we've been exhorted in this psalm, may we honor your Son in all that we do so that we might be living reflections of your glory, even in the midst of a raging world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, All Rights Reserved.